You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father in heaven, we're grateful we can gather once more um, to think and learn under the authority of your word and your church. And we pray for the day and the week ahead in each of our lives and in the various circumstances we face. In Christ's name, amen. Well, so I know I know a lot of you. I, I don't know all of you. My name is um, come on in, is Jason Wallace. I, um, I, I I'm licensed to teach. No, I don't. I uh, I I uh, I've been at Advent about ten years, and I I'm in Birmingham because I'm a, I'm a professor at Samford University in the history department, uh, and I I help direct some of their um, their initiatives with the great books programs and sort of foundation foundational education uh general education for uh for the university and i guess i've been at that a good while and as such uh in that strange role um i get called upon from time to time to teach <laughs> uh i my my training is in um i have some theological training and um and i have a um a degree and um um Western religious history. I, I say all that just in case anybody wants to leave right up front. If the credentials don't fit, um, I figure uh, no, no harm taken. Um, yeah, and so I, I get called upon sometimes to do these special series, sort of topical series, uh, which requires a little brainstorming. And this one uh, was, this is one we came up with, uh, working with Gil. And the closer I got to it, the more afraid I got about teaching this. Um, are we getting too far off of the mark in terms of what the church is about here? You know, what we gather for every Sunday under word and sacrament. Are we getting too far afield perhaps into the divisive part of our nature? Um, the answer is yes <laughs> to both, but no as well. Uh, the more I think about it, uh, the more I think about it, it's yes and no. Um, it's an inescapable problem. It's an inescapable problem. And I think one of the things the church has to be mindful of, carefully mindful of, is how we're appropriating and thinking about cultural echoes uh, going on around us. Um, and, and, of course, <laughs> politics can be more than a cultural echo, but the way it's communicated uh, can be. Where, do, where does this come from, this, this, this thing, this identity politics thing? Is it even really a thing? I think that's where we want to start. And then by the end of the class, this is a, we have three more after this, so you're expected to be at all of them. Um, but at the end of this, uh, over three sessions, you know, what's the theological vision at stake here? Uh, what's the Christian vision at stake here, to be blunt? Um, I don't know that we're going to get it perfect. You know, the Bible doesn't speak exhaustively to every minutia of our lives. It, it speaks generally and, and kindly and lovingly to our needs as people, our ultimate needs. But then it doesn't always tell us when to set the alarm clock, uh, what car to buy, who to marry, um, whether the computer's going to work, you know, that, that type of stuff much less how politics is going to work perfectly. So I don't think we're looking for, for some exhaustive answers here so much as a framework. 
the idea comes out of a what I think less out of the actual reality of politics at the moment than the way politics is being communicated. Then, then the idea for the whole series comes out of this: how, how is um, what's happening in terms of the transmission of identity in our in our public lives? Um, if it doesn't take a lot of imagination to 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 see or to think something's weird in public discourse right now. And then, you know, the two-step back move is, well, has it always been weird? You know, who, what does that mean to say that? Or is it the way we're communicating, the way information is being transferred? Uh, is that what's happening? You know, is the, our diet of Internet and cable uh, distillations, distillations of who we are in our politics. Is that what's happening? Uh, either way, if you're, if you're like me, you're annoyed at some point, or you're ignoring, or you're angry, or you're, I gotta go eat. You know, I mean, it's something, <laughs> somehow, you know, there feels to be something out of balance, something out of tune. And I want to distinguish this, the distillation of information and, and, I, and who we are from maybe is, is have we always is there always been something to us as people that that's out of sorts as well, right? We want to distinguish those things. I'm going to try to play this a couple of videos for us just to get us started again, trying to establish are we even right? Becoming a church, trying to, to figure out these these things. If this doesn't work, I'll act it out. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, did that? Uh... Trump, gay marriage, women on boards, Black Lives Matter. What do they have in common? They've all been used as examples of so-called identity politics. It's the idea that groups are calling for special treatment based on race, religion, sex, or other characteristics. And some fear that a politics based on protecting narrow group interests rather than broader political movements can be dangerous. Identity politics emerged because groups that have been historically ignored or harmed demanded their rights be protected, from civil rights or women's rights to gay rights. The idea was that safeguarding these rights makes society fairer, more tolerant and more equal. But some now think that these protections have gone too far. By focusing so much on their own rights and interests, they threaten the rights of others. If you oppose affirmative action, you may be labelled a racist. If you comment on a woman's appearance, you might be called a misogynist or a sex pest. Very British. has gone too far. Fuel the rise of Trump, whose campaign was nakedly on PC. And it isn't just a Western phenomenon either, nor is it new. India's ruling party espouses Hindu nationalism, sometimes at the expense of the country's Muslim minority. So identity is part of politics everywhere, and probably always will be. But there is a way forward, and it starts with resisting the temptation to see politics as a zero-sum game. If the LGBT community gets more rights or protections, heterosexuals don't automatically get fewer. Supporting women's interests doesn't simultaneously undermine the interests of men. So the question is not whether identity politics should exist, but in what form. 
Knee-jerk actions or quick fixes like quotas aren't the best way to go. But there is a role for better information, such as improving public data on diversity in companies or universities. The challenge is to make identity politics constructive and inclusive, rather than destructive and divisive. It's open, not closed. Well, okay. Very, uh, uh, sorry, a very uh, optimistic sort of assessment there, I think, from The Economist, but a helpful summary, I guess, of, of what's at stake in some ways. Um, but again, the conclusion from this particular journalist from The Economist is we can do better. And we have to do better by eliminating this zero-sum game uh, kind of um, dialogue. Maybe. Maybe. Um, a few images uh, to, just to contemplate. Um, there, there's something um, visceral about this uh, in terms of the way it strikes us, this, this sense of divisiveness and disunity. And again, I'm not sure it's, as, we, as we pull back the layers, I'm not sure that the, the unity we're looking for has ever been there. Uh, that may be the very reason we have politics. <laughs> but what is this visceral thing? What is this ideal that the economist uh, wants us to strive for? What, what are we trying to uh, supposedly um, be? What are we trying to be as a collective people? And what does it mean to have, uh, uh, to have interest, right? Uh, and, and interests that compete with one another. And then what does it mean to have interest reduced to what was just described or what's on the screen there? Um, certain characteristics or what we call accidents of our nature okay all right so that, that just doing the, the, the groundwork here um, I, I think the next move is are, are, are we really talking about a real thing or are we just talking about uh, hype right well we saw a little video we, we see these images some of which um, again strike us different ways I'm sure I, I don't want us to share our feelings um, at the moment um, I but there's always a, the most reliable uncle you can go to is Uncle Google. You, if we don't think this is a thing yet, um, just by our experience of information and um, and how we're transferring information, look at look at this. If you if you hit if you do a Google search, you'll generate about 272 million hits with this phrase in it. That's that's substantial. I mean, that, that, that's a substantial move. And then I started, to, I was going to outline various titles of the last year of articles that have been written. I, and I gave up. I thought, this is just a pointless slide. I mean, of me just typing article after article. Um, so there's that. Uh, we, we can say that. Then we've got these very complicated sort of definitions that have been thrown out. Uh, if you don't want to read all of that, don't. But it's from the Oxford Bibliography. It's a collection of essays on the idea of identity politics. Um, a lot of academic ease in that. Uh, but point being that when you have a, 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 an academic press like Oxford trying to define it, when they get hold of these things, it means there's something there there. They're, they're trying to grab hold of, to market and sell, and to make sense of. So there's some key, uh, key things there. Um, Widely used in the social sciences and the humanities. 
most when we when you think about something like this this concept, it really does come out of the cultural centers, education, media, and the arts, right, are where we find the flashpoints. Where where might you find other flashpoints that this type of phraseology comes up? Maybe human resources <laughs> at your work, right? I mean, places where you have to intersect with other people. But in terms of like the real explosions, they tend to be in my world of, of higher education. They tend to be in the world of, of, of cultural creation, media creation, and uh, the arts. And then they trickle over into places of business and places of worship, etc. A complicated uh, definition. I think there's an easier way to get at it. But some key phrases here. Promotion of political ideologies, so, the stimulation to social and political action, in the context of inequality or injustice, with the aim of gaining power and recognition. And then we see what we're going, what will be repeated: the women's movement, African American civil rights movement, gay and lesbian movement, national and post-colonial movements. Let's try something a little shorter. Uh, again, I, 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 once you've made the dictionary, you're real. I don't know, I guess, but. Um, both Oxford and Merriam-Webster in our country have uh, have identified this as a thing. A tendency for people of a particular religion, race, or social background to form exclusive political alliances moving away from traditional broad-based uh, party politics. And people having a, uh, a particular religious, ethnic, social, or cultural identity to promote their own interests without the regard for the larger group. These are two definitions floating around. Okay. All right. I, I, I'm going to move forward with I think this is a thing. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, enough of this preliminary. If the dictionary says it, it's got to be a thing. And if we can Google it, it's got to be a thing. And if the economist is going to make videos telling us how to get out of it, yeah, it's got to be a thing. Right. Um, well, what does it mean for people who come and worship at churches, people who claim the identity of Christ. And I think that's the point of this series. It, it, the point is not to unmask anything here. If anything, uh, if, if we were to step out just on demographic profile alone, we're a largely uh, white, affluent, middle-class to affluent congregation, and those, those things attune us to various ways we hear things and process things and none of this is an attempt to say that other people aren't worth hearing or that there's not real struggle in the world uh, that should be dismissed uh, it's not I want to accomplish something else here which is is there a theological way to think about it is there a Christological way to think about it is there a Christ-like way to go about thinking about this in terms of our identity so that that's what we're I'm hoping to accomplish Couple of, couple of, any questions about that thus far? Just getting us wading into the pool, so to speak. <clears throat> All right. Do a little history. I'm going to suggest something. <laughs> People have always been in conflict with each other. And I know, please don't walk out. I promise. I, 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 I don't think I can. I think I can prove it, actually. But I think if we can, we can stretch back many. Many a decade, 
uh, probably back to ancient history and find that people have been in conflict with each other and conflict resolution and the managing of conflict uh, and even identity, as complicated as that word is, has been part of the goal of politics. And prior to the 20th century, I think the two great issues that emerged in the early modern world, the two great issues that emerged in the early modern world were class and economic interest, think French Revolution, and the, the challenge to the aristocracy, and religion, think the breakdown of the Catholic consensus in the Reformation period. So the early modern world, let's just randomly, let's say in 1500s forward, starts finding these two issues emerging as increasing points of contention between people groups. How are Catholics and Protestants going to live together? How are Protestants and Protestants going to live together? Sub-Protestants and Protestants going to live together? And then, of course, the increasing gap between the rise of a kind of entrepreneurial um, class of people who are making their own money as, a, as opposed to inheriting a title. All right? Prior to the 20th century, I think these were the two great issues in the early modern world. I'm not talking about the ancient world for the moment. Probably and arguably, I think defensively, the, one of the most important um, living documents to come out of that is our own constitution as a way of regulating these things as best we can, <laughs> of finding a way to get as much um, interest into a common consensus. Uh, the, we could com contrast this, for example, with the French republics that emerged very soon after our own, which did not work out quite as well. It's another lesson, but but we did get these wonderful this wonderful document, the Constitution, um, a, 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 truly a powerful piece of work that is, is is yet to be matched in terms of the problem of conflict public conflict. The two issues at stake most, uh, most if you read the, the Constitution, which I'm sure you do most Sundays, I, uh, you, you, you would see, okay, they really were concerned about this. If you take it a step further and you read the Federalist Papers, the, the sort of interpretive, you know, the manual to the Constitution, the Federalist Papers have been cited more times by the U.S. Supreme Court than the Constitution. So, um, I don't need to tell a church of lawyers that, but the, uh, the Federalist paper, if you look at something like Federalist Number 10 by James Madison, one of the most famous, I mean, all my students read it in the great books class. The whole point is conflict. <laughs> the whole point is people are going to be in conflict with each other. Interest is going to be in conflict with interest. Class is going to be in conflict. So how does it work, Right. The great breath we can draw here is there's nothing new under the sun, and if anything, uh, there's something really intelligible about this. So whatever's going on today, again, is it a matter of how things are being transmitted or is it substantive, right? Because these guys knew there was conflict. People before them knew there was conflict. So those are the two, keep those two in mind and then let's, let's go to this slide. What's been added on to class, economics, and race? I'm sorry, and religion. What's been at, how has it grown? What's the elasticity, so to speak, of this, this, this problem of politics and identity and conflict? Nothing there should alarm us. 
right? Anybody that has grown up in the late 20th century or was alive in the late 20th century, looks like most of us were, no, no, no insults intended there because it just means wisdom. The, what we've seen since the late 20th century is the elasticity of conflict. As matters of race have grown more contentious, uh, identity issues surrounding gender, human sexuality, and then this little more complicated category of ethnicity, which is like race, but not, because it has also to do with culture and sort of cultural identity as well, okay? So from what I guess what I'm getting at here, from here uh, to here, we see this expansive and emerging question of just how big the social contract can be in terms of both defining interest and absorbing them. The other thing, and we'll, we'll re probably repeat this, that, that, that is emerging is well, that is a timepiece. By propertied white males of a different time who were writing in a, a specific context that no longer holds. Okay? Uh, a timepiece, a, a, a period piece, so to speak, that demands reappropriation and evaluation based upon all these changes. Demographic changes, right? Make sense? Okay. Oops, sorry. Identity, even now, so you see we just keep getting more and more. If we go from here, we go to this little color wheel. Identity now can include age, culture, language, disability, education, language again, occupation, urban, rural habitation, veteran status, and this is a... Um, a common graph that's used to show the interconnectivity of questions of identity. And you can just look at that for a second and see now what's, it, what's sort of being put in play in the public sphere. Um, almost everything. <laughs> Which also leads us to another question, if it's everything, is it anything? You follow me? <laughs> And I'm not, I'm not answering that. I'm just struggling with it. Uh, so we see how expansive that. And then there's another word I want to throw out to you just in terms of um, our background here. Um, <coughs> is uh, a word you'll see tossed around called intersectionality. Anybody heard this word or seen it in magazines or the news? It's, it's, it's probably not a word you use every day with your children or your spouse. Um, and I don't recommend it, but um, intersectionality is the interconnected nature of social categorization, such as race, class, and gender, as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. Let's translate and get out of the world of academics. Um, it's where these things collide and overlap. <laughs> that all, you can see the graph that all these things end up in a Venn sort of overlap of what. If, so you can break your uh, identity uh, identity issues into these sub issues that then create composite compound issues. That's what intersectionality is. And again, I, I say it not because we want to come to church and say, "What did you learn today?" Well, I learned about intersectionality. I say it because this is the sort of, this is what's going on in education. 
This is what's going on in social sciences and humanities right now in terms of translating what this means. Okay, and this is the kind of word that's used. The other reason I'm bringing it up is just the complexity of this. If you can avoid a conversation about this, I would, because once you're in this, it, you know, you're, you're, you're in a mess. And you're also in a lot of feelings, if you look at that. I mean, you're in a lot of histories. You're, you're, you're in a broader patch of complications, of, uh, of, of, of identity, you know? And it's like, well, where do you go with this, right? Um, so intersectionality, and, and so those three, three sort of visuals, we got this sort of historical frame that set the pattern of, of a social contract that manages these interests. We have an expansion of these in the sort of post-World War II moment that we're still living in. We, we, we continue to add to it, and then we get collisions within it, right? And so when we do listen to distilled information, read articles, watch the news, listen to the radio, whatever, this is what people are working out of. This is what people are working out of when they're advocating or when you hear somebody that may you may agree with or put you off or whatever it is, often this is the paradigm. Okay. All right. Any any comments or thoughts on that? Questions or Well, good. I think it's clear too. Uh <laughs> I'd like everybody to pick which one you would... No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> all right. So I'm going to pause there. Let's move to the, the next thing I want to talk about. The great historical problem. The great... His now, what we're going to do here the next few minutes, I'm going to wait. I'm going to sort of... These are teasers kind of where we're going um, with uh, the class, right? But we've got to set this up uh, to, to try to understand... How we're going to think about it theologically. There's three great problems that emerge in the Western world that that are feeding this conversation. Three great uh, historical problems, and then they center around what's the point of politics to begin with. So if we take a step back from all the noise and and the the nightly news conflicts. There's the more philosophical question, right? Like, what is it? <laughs> well, one, one answer is politics is natural to the human condition. All right? And I, I got my little snapshot here up in the corner of Plato and Aristotle, which I know you, you have in your baseball card set, the, uh, of Plato and Aristotle. The, the old Greeks, the old Romans, they said, you know what? Politics is just, it's what we are. We have to have it. We're drawn to it by nature. We're communal people. Uh, we, 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 we're, we're destined for relationships and by our nature. And so politics is a, like ants and bees. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, they, like they form communities, so too people form communities. And so then they spend, you know, they walk around Greece saying, well, what does that look like? You know, and they write a lot of stuff and, and we read it. Um, that, that's the, the natural argument. Then there's the second one that emerges. And this is a more theological obviously, argument. It's one that emerges out of Christian and Jewish history. Politics is a necessary and, divi and divinely sanctioned activity given the fall, given human sinfulness. That if we take human sinfulness as a, as a, um, as a reality, this affects how we're going to understand 
the purpose of politics. And of course, the orientation is towards God and God's will. Um, here, you see, we have St. Augustine down here. I don't, that, yeah. And then we have Thomas Aquinas over there, John Calvin. Um, I would say all these guys from the ancient church through the early, through, through the modern period have wrestled with this question. You know, the role of human anthropology, sinfulness, and it's uh, all of its uh, the vagaries in our life that it's complicated. And really the, the whole purpose of Christ and his work for us on our behalf can be tied to that question. Then we got this last one. All right. And we're going to do a little more with this next week, just because I I want you to come. So I'm going to hold off on this one. So, but this is important. Politics is unnatural to the human condition. It's artificial. That in our nature we're something else, and politics then reorients us and manages us. We'll say more about this next week as we try to do some biblical theology on politics. But the, the issue here <coughs> emerges in the early modern period in the work of thinkers like Thomas Hobbes or John Locke. And it spills all the way back over to this. The idea that by nature, that what they're trying to get at is that by nature... We are, we are one thing, and then politics is an artificial agreement we enter into to be something else. Peaceable and pros pro prosperous. All right? So it takes a little bit of thought to reflect on it, but just reflect on it for a second. You've got the natural argument, the necessarily and divinely sanctioned, and the unnatural argument. The, the social contract is we we surrender our freedom to the greater good kind of thing. We'll, we'll tease it out. One thing, to, a takeaway right here, though, an easy takeaway is you can see there, these can collide and overlap with each other as well. That there, you know that there, there could be different conflicting uh, conflicting um, issues at stake. Somebody could believe that politics is both natural and divinely sanctioned. For example, <clears throat> either way, either way, as a building block, as a point of contact, that's the great historical question behind all this. What's the point of it? Right? What's the point of it? And if you go with this middle argument, if you go with the argument that politics is necessarily a divinely sanctioned activity, you're in good company with the history of the church. <laughs> you're in good company across the ages from uh, arguably, well, as I will try to argue, the Bible forward. Okay? The Bible forward. So, where does the, what's the monkey wrench? What's the ideological monkey wrench? Well, here he is. Here it is. Okay? If you really want to, to, to trace the, the roots of the collision between these arguments about what politics is, and where the idea of identity begins to become part of the conversation in a new way, it is with, it is with Karl Marx and the work of Karl Marx. Um, a brilliant man, 
a, a, a man of keen insight, but not, but a revolutionary, a man who did, who was working out of another paradigm than the possibility of religion as an answer to the human uh, dilemma. Uh, our problem is humans. And I, this quote's important because where we're going in here is religion matters. Theology matters, okay? And because theology matters and the Bible matters, I think this is your great flashpoint right here. And how this is translated through into our contemporary world. Man makes religion. Religion does not make man. Man is no abstract being squatting outside the world. Man is the world of man, state, society. What does that mean? There is no transcendent order. There is no heavenly cause. Everything is social. Everything is political. Social and political power and identity are the sum of our existence. That's what Marx is saying. Okay? Religion is the, this is the famous quote that, you know, teenagers learn sometimes. And they like to throw back at you when they come to college. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless condition. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. To call on them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusions. Good writer. <laughs> he, could, he could pack a wallop. And he did. And I want to urge us that to make sense of the moment that we're talking about as Christians, we have to take seriously this as a mode of thinking. Not everybody starts from a theological or religious standpoint. And Marx is the great thinker who says, I can show you why we don't start from that standpoint. What really is at stake always is interest. Social construction and interest in collision with each other. Religion is simply a kind of drug, a medication, an antidote to the struggle you're really feeling. What you really are is alienated from your true self, which is tied to your interest. And that interest then has to be translated into a way we all can be elevated. And of course, his answer was, we know communism. And all right, we, we can say more about that. But, but a pivotal figure. A pivotal figure. Did that make sense? Did that make sense? Okay. So that, that's a turning point for us. Now, what I want to push back, if we've established what is it, why it's there, what's going on, what I want to push back, and, and what, I, what I, I think we as the, the church, as Christians, have to wrestle with imperfectly, imperfectly, is, is there something about our nature that is pre-political and pre-social? And what I mean by that is if the post-Marxist world, if we're going to live in this sort of post-modern, post-Marxist world, where um, 
where the argument is that it's all about our identity and interest. As identity and interest can gain as much political capital as possible, I think the first hand raise we have to have is, well, why are you saying we're simply products of politics and society? Are we something else? Is human nature something else? Okay? And that's, I think, the starting point for a Christian answer. And that's what I want to unpack the next few weeks. We are something else. And it's not an answer that's going to satisfy everyone. But the answer is the great theological answer. We are created and our identities are fundamentally spiritual. Now, the Marxists in the back of the room will raise their hand and say, ah, you're just nice delivery system for that opium, right? I, I know the, the, what the, the counter to that is. But my response there is, uh, my, my, my response is, there, there's not much of a response I can give you except to ask, are there certain aspects of our lives that determine our behavior, our thoughts, our values that cannot be subject to, say, public uh, process or social conditions? I.e., if you change our social conditions, would we still choose to behave morally under those conditions? New conditions. You strip away everything we have. You strip away our material existence. Is there something left that says, there is a God and I am accountable? That's what I mean by pre-political. That's what I mean by pre-social. Okay? So I'll close here. Is because we want to move this toward a, 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 a Christological argument over, over the, the series. In Genesis 1, God says, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created Mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. I'll close with this. Identity, from a Christian starting point, is generated. It's created. It's something, I'm going to use a word here that, I, ontological, is <laughs> in our being. It's before our social and political commitments. There's something that makes you human first. And that's what Christianity is concerned with. Our faith is concerned with that created nature and what's happened to it and the restoration of it. I'll close it. Any, any thoughts or questions? So next week, uh, I think we'll move into the question of what, you know, how do we think? I want to further out this idea of biblical theology of politics under this, this larger aegis of what it means to be created, that our being is something else. And I, I, hope, I hope you'll be able to join us. Thank you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.